I'm Julia LaRoche, and this is Yahoo Finance Presents What It Takes. Today, we're joined by private equity pioneer Stephen Schwarzman, the CEO of the Blackstone Group. He comes from humble beginnings, and he went on to build one of the most successful and largest private equity firms. Today, we take a look back at his career. We also talk about his engagement with world leaders, including President Trump. We get his thoughts on global trade and the economy, and of course, talk about his philanthropy. Take a listen. We're at Blackstone with CEO Stephen Schwarzman, the author of What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for inviting me. Of course. Now, Steve, in many ways, you're representative of the American dream. Um, you are on the Forbes list as the 100th richest person in the world. You've built one of the most successful asset management companies and one of the biggest. Yet you're sort of an unlikely story. You're the son of a dry goods seller. You grew up in a middle-class background. You went to a public school. So I have to ask you this. If you were starting out today, would you have what it takes to gain the same level of success? Well, you never can predict exactly what your path would be when you start. Uh, I was born at a time where you know, it, was, it was easier than it is today. I was the second year of the post-World War II baby boom. So there weren't many people ahead of you. So, so I, I, I think I probably could have figured out a route uh, in today's world, uh, but it was definitely easier uh, when I was going to junior high school and high school and college and getting my first job. Now, I'm just reading about you, uh, even when you were in high school, you were always a leader, or when you were in college or in the Army or starting out on Wall Street, you always took up these leadership roles, addressed problems. Was that something that was natural to you, or did you learn that quality? No, it was natural. You know, I, I always liked to be in charge of something or lead the way or fix something that was was not optimal or broken, uh, and it was, it was comfortable. Uh, I, I sort of always wanted things to work well. And, and so when I saw something that wasn't, you know, I could talk to the principal of the school or, you know, sort of the colonel in the army or you know, the dean of another university uh, uh, department. And I always felt I was doing something that was, was good, uh, you know, for people I worked with. And I just liked that kind of role. You know, something else that really stood out to me is that you wrote letters to people. You would write letters to business uh, leaders, and they would actually sometimes invite you into their homes and have discussions with you. So do you experience that today, and do you find that young people are reaching out to you, and do you find ways to give back to them? Yeah, I, I have like a steady stream of, of people. Sometimes when I go places, somebody will come up and hand me a note. Uh, you know, could I talk to you, or uh, I'm, I'm sort of at a point in my career where I could use some advice. And I try to do as many of those as I can, but I can't do them all. So, so there's a randomness uh, to it. But, but none of us uh, become successful uh, because it's just us. Right. Everybody needs someone to support them. Everybody needs, in effect, a mentor or more than a mentor. And, and, and so re relying on other people helped me you know, sort of wend my way to wherever I've gotten. Uh, and I, I think uh, that we all have an obligation uh, to other people uh, to help them on their journey as well. Um, when you start on Wall Street, 
This was a funny story you told. You caught the attention of senior leaders early on at Lehman Brothers. Uh, Lou Glucksman yelled at you for not sitting up straight. Um, and he later learned a lot of good things about you. While she was smaller then, do you think that's still the case now that young people can stand out um, early on uh, amongst their senior leaders? Well, I, I think so. Uh, all of us uh, in a more senior uh, capacity are always looking around us uh, to, to see who's got something special. Uh, and be because if you're in any kind of you know, uh, vocation that involves human beings, you realize that people with real talent, real drive, you know, have that so certain special quality. We call them tens. Uh, nines are not so bad <laughs> either. Uh, that they'll take you places. Uh, they'll develop things that you haven't thought of. They'll, they'll have a sixth sense uh, as they get older. Uh, and, and if you develop those people, it's great for them, but, it, but it's also great for whatever institution you're in, whether it's uh, for-profit like Blackstone or, or a not-for-profit. Steve, so you just mentioned tens. How do you find a ten? Like, what do you look for to find a ten? What does it take? Well, uh, it's, it's part of interviewing. Uh, what, what you find is that uh, after the age of 40, people are their reputation. So if you meet someone and you're a little under-impressed and everyone says they're amazing, the chance that they're amazing is actually quite high. But when they're younger than 40, 20s and mid-30s and below, um, it's, it's, it's a little more challenging because they themselves have been trying out almost different approaches and, and different, different presentation styles. So, so I, I like to spend time with people in unstructured context. Uh, usually when I meet someone, they give me a resume. Usually buried in the resume is something like in you know, the fourth grade, they were the you know, US national chess champion or something mm -hmm. that they really want you to talk about because it's so odd. And, and so I take that odd thing and I, you know, I acknowledge they put it there and you know, what happened to you with that? And, and then you know, we can talk about almost anything. Uh, I'm trying to feel how smart they are, how, how stable they are, how curious they are. Um, and usually you can do that by just looking into their eyes. Uh, and sometimes I'll walk in a room and talk about what I was just doing, if it's exciting, and if they recoil with fear because it's a different situation, they, they, they probably won't be able to handle things that, that come at them uh, in an unpredictable way. What you want them to do is hold the table, and to, to be pretty much of an equal, be, because they are. Mm -hmm. Just because you're senior, all that means is that you've had more experience. doesn't mean that you're better than anybody that you meet. Well, I know it's really difficult to get a job at Blackstone. I was reading some of the stats in the book. So I have to ask you this. Do you think if you're applying uh, to a job at Blackstone that they would hire you? Well, this is what I worry about because I don't think they would. Uh, <laughs> Why not? Because my grades, well, I wasn't a summa cum laude or magna. I wasn't even a cum laude. Uh, and, and uh, you know, so, so there, there are different modes uh, of learning. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm not so bad at some of this stuff, but, but it's not because I, I test to, to a degree that a lot of the people we hire. So, so I, I think it's important that we look at different factors uh, here at the firm. Uh, the conservative way is always hire the 
mm -hmm. brightest person. I, I think it's important to be involved in uh, student government of some type or a club or something where you demonstrate leadership. Uh, I tend to like people uh, who are athletes only because you, you can take pain. Uh, you know, if you're a good athlete, you push yourself uh, to a point where it's not not pleasant. Well, shifting gears, I do want to talk about the private equity business just broadly. Um, but first, let's talk about interest rates because they've been incredibly low, and that's probably one of the most important metrics uh, when it comes to your business. So what's your outlook for rates? Well, it's hard to go much lower, and if you do, it's not particularly productive uh, because in, in, in most um, country's economic system, uh, at the centerpiece is our financial institutions, banks, and, and, and countries grow when they extend credit to people, businesses and people. Uh, if, if their interest spread is so low, because rates are so low, that they have trouble making money, the way many in Europe do, uh, that, then it hurts economic growth for the whole country. So, so there are, I, I view it as a law of diminishing returns as rates go lower and lower and lower, it also hurts people who save mm -hmm. because they can't make much money either. So, so, you know, now in Europe, I guess about a third of the countries are negative interest rates. In other words, you have to pay them to take your right. money. Seems to me there's something wrong with that model. Uh, and, and those countries, as, as individual countries, uh, aren't doing uh, particularly well. Well, people often ask you for advice, so what would you recommend in these sorts of situations? Well, I, I, I think there are two things you can do. One, one is, is reform uh, of an economic uh, uh, system. Uh, and and uh, another thing uh, that you can do is use uh, fiscal uh, policies to spend more money to stimulate an economy. But just forcing rates down into negative territory, I... You know, I, I, I don't see that as a, uh, as a particular path to glory. Mm -hmm. um, when you started Blackstone in 1985, you wrote that you had two big tailwinds, the U.S. economy and then the unraveling of Wall Street. Um, if you or even a young person were starting a firm like Blackstone today, do you think they'd have the same sort of um, success? Well, there's a lot of ways to be successful. Uh, today, there are other advantages you, 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 you have. Uh, the chance of borrowing money, uh, you know, very cheaply. You, you have a, a, a huge number of new technologies where, where you can become an expert, where perhaps somebody isn't. And, and that's a path uh, uh, to success that didn't exist uh, when, when I was uh, younger. So, so whenever you have a big, robust economy uh, and governments printing lots of money, you can usually get some money because there's so much around, mm -hmm. uh, and, and the changes in the economy, the structural changes now vastly exceed anything than when I was younger. Um, just two years into your career, um, you made what you described as one of the biggest investment mistakes, or the firm did, and someone, an investor, berated you and almost made you cry. Um, and you often talk about failures as opportunities to learn. So what did you learn from that experience, and how did that change your investment process going forward? Well, that was, that was perhaps one of the defining moments of, of the firm and my career. Um, we, we, we basically bought a company where two partners disagreed. One thought it was going to be a big winner. The other one thought it was going to go bankrupt. I picked the first partner. 
We didn't have any processes. We are just sitting in front of my desk. I thought I was King Solomon at the age of 38. Guess what? I wasn't. And we lost our money. And this was totally traumatic because it was our third investment. Uh, and one of our investors uh, asked me to come in and basically started screaming at me. And in my family, uh, nobody ever raised their voices. I, I never heard a raised voice in my household. Uh, so that makes me very sensitive uh, to, to meaning when what other people are saying. In this case, th this, this was like some, some, some bunch of speakers turned up to deafening, and I, I, I left this thing. I, I almost started crying as this guy was, was, was berating me with good reason. Um, and, and I basically said, this is never going to happen again. We're going to come up with a different system. Uh, we're going to assess risk. We need something different. And so what we invented is basically what we use today, which, which involves uh, a team doing a written presentation, listing, listing all the risks, among other factors, and giving it to a group of people to read two days before so they actually don't, don't get hoodwinked by somebody going with flip charts right in front of them. Mm -hmm. and, and then we get about, depends, different groups, different number of people. Just say, for example, you have eight people around the table and the team walks in and basically part of the rule that we developed back then, it's adapted a little bit now, was that every person at that table has to recite. Every person has to point out the risks and how, what the probability of those risks should be in their view, and how bad it would be if that happened. And it's not about watching one smart person interrogate a team and, and having seven others be a paid audience. Nobody's an audience. And if the people who bring the proposal realize that they're basically going to be intellectually filleted every time they come in the room, then it's never personal, because it happens every time. And it makes the team be much better prepared, and it makes everyone who's at the table much better prepared. And then there's always questions. You send them back. You do the same process again. And by the time you finish, we have quite a good idea of what the prospect of loss could be. If there's real prospect of loss, we don't do it. Uh, and then we price the deal and if we buy it it's not the fault of the team if it doesn't work out well the reason it isn't their fault about 90 percent of the time it's one of those three variables one of those three risks that happen and we knew it was going to happen but we didn't think it would really happen or we didn't think it would be so bad and so the team has the security of knowing that it's it's not their decision and it's not even their assessment of, of whether we should go forward. It's all of ours. Mm -hmm. and, and so that way, it's, it's very secure and fun here, and it's lifetime learning, and we're all exploring together. And, and that's what I learned. And that was the biggest change in our business. I, was, I realized I wasn't so smart. I needed everybody you to make it work. You said that psychology is one of your greatest strengths as an investor. Is that the characteristic that sets you apart? That, that's really helpful because my math isn't very good. 
as, as my brothers would tell you. Uh, and you know, I never got beyond add, subtract, multiply, and divide. But, but I can figure out typically what, what's on somebody else's mind. If you can figure out what's on the mind of the person who's opposite mm -hmm. you, then you can solve their problems pretty easily unless what they're thinking is so unreasonable that, that, that there's really nothing to discuss. Well, I do want to turn um, to your engagement, your public engagement. You know, in the book you talk about that you spend a lot of time talking to world leaders, and you're certainly no stranger to the White House. I mean, going back several administrations now. Um, so as a business leader, what's your view on the current administration, specifically President Trump and his impact on the economy? Has he done a good job? Has he done a bad job? What's your assessment there? Well, different people have different views. I guess if you're a Democrat, you have one view. If you're a Republican, uh, another uh, I, I think the most important thing that was, was achieved was, was the reduction uh, in, in regulation. Uh, and there are some other important things from a tax perspective. Uh, but that sets a stage uh, for, for longer term uh, growth in a way that wouldn't happen uh, if you hadn't made those changes. Um, you also talked about the strategic and policy forum, the business leaders that Trump had you put together. Um, but after Charlottesville, that group disbanded, and it sounded like in the book that you had some regrets about that, specifically things that could have been done. Um, looking back, how do you think things could have been done differently, and what would have happened if the group stayed together? Well, if the group, the group was formed uh, basically because the president asked for a small group of people who, who could tell him where he was going in the wrong direction uh, and, and suggest other ways. And, and so it was meant to be an open forum uh, where, where you could give input, uh, you know, if you didn't agree, fine. If you agreed, fine. And, and that's a precious uh, kind of attribute to have uh, in, in government because usually when you disagree with the president or a prime minister, doesn't matter which country, you can do that one or two times. By the time you do it the third and fourth, you become in less favor. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was a good structural thing to have. Uh, unfortunately, with the, with the outcome of Charlottesville and, and, and sort of a number of the members uh, who are running big companies, you know, like half of, their, uh, half of their companies had employees who were Democrats who were very unhappy with the president, uh, and they were, in effect, uh, putting pressure uh, on the CEO. You have customers, you know, half of whom are Democrats, uh, who, who are also putting pressure, and then there are also some Republicans who were unhappy. So, so, you know, I, I started getting contacts from the members saying, uh, I'm under excruciating pressure here, and, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't want to do this because it's hurting my business. And for me, this is an easy decision. Why, why should you do something that's hurting your business? This is supposed to be a, a good thing, not turn out to be a bad thing for you. And, and so we decided the best thing to do uh, was, was to, um, to end the group. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the purpose of the group uh, was, was, a, was a good thing for the country because it was bipartisan. Now, you also talk about that you've been involved actively in the trade talks. I know um, you've worked with business leaders and, and uh, leaders in China. We've seen the uh, trade tensions escalate. Um, and since you've been involved in those talks, you also said that they're the most complicated you've ever experienced. Why, why is that? Why are they so complicated? Well, it's been two and a half years, and um, you know, most deals <laughs> don't take two and a half years. 
And, and the reason why it's complicated is, is actually simple. Uh, that, that, that China, uh, for the last 40 years, has grown more than any other country in world history. Uh, it's pretty amazing, but they've done it through a system you know, where they have relatively closed uh, borders, they have high tariffs, uh, they have a variety of other practices w which are not done uh, in, in the developed world, like the United States and Europe and some other countries. And, and, and so given the fact that somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of the people in the United States are having a tough time uh, economically and they're unhappy with their government, the previous government, doesn't matter, uh, and they want changes, uh, and they're angry, uh, and, and they should be. Uh, and, and so those people, um, after they've run out of you know, sort of un people to attack in the United States for their unhappiness, they go abroad, and China's the target. And, and so China's where the jobs went, uh, you know, and China's where a lot of the wealth went during that period. So, so people want China to adjust. And China recognizes that that's what happened. There are a lot of people who just like it that way because it works. There are other people who recognize you just can't keep doing that with things getting relatively worse uh, in, in the developed world. And, and so there needs to be an adjustment. People don't like giving up things mm -hmm. that they have. Uh, the United States uh, would like to normalize all of these issues as soon as possible for China. So, so you've got something that's going to happen over the long term. And the question is, how fast does it happen uh, and how much of it happens? Mm -hmm. and, and so that, that's an area of, of tension as each one of these cultures decides what they're really willing to satisfy as a first step because you're not going to get all this done. Nobody gives up the economic structure they've had for 40 years that's turned them in a winner, into a winner because someone else asked them. But, but they're coming back to the table again, uh, which is a good thing. Do you think we'll get a deal? And when do you think we will get a deal? Well, nobody knows that type of stuff. Uh, what, what's important uh, is, is it appears that this is a serious engagement, uh, and we'll, we'll see where it goes. I, I don't think there's anyone. It's hard to handicap. Who knows how to handicap it, except I think there's now a recognition uh, on both sides uh, that, that, that the decoupling of these two economies is really adversely uh, affecting the world, global growth. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter which part of the world. Uh, and if you do that as a long-term strategy, you know, that, that will have a depressing uh, impact on um, global growth. And that's a net losing strategy. Uh, and so hopefully uh, the fact that we're going into re-engagement uh, is, is a recognition uh, by the parties that, um, you know, particularly by China, that, that this isn't in their long-term best interest either to decouple. Um, it kind of brings me to the Schwarzman scholars um, at Ch to Tsinghua University. And you wrote about how we could fall into the um, Thucydides trap if China and the US cannot find a quote, cooperative, trusting way to manage the shift in political power. Um, how much does that worry you? You think about 
problems and things, and you worry sometimes. How much does that worry you? Well, when, when, I, when we got the idea for this in 2011, it worried me then. But I must say, uh, I was wrong. I, I thought this would take 10 or 15 years. Uh, it, it started happening two years ago, mm -hmm. you know, in 2016. So, so it's it's pretty clear that that you know, with the tensions rising between, you know, sort of. Uh, U.S. and China, uh, and, and, and the developed world uh, and China, that there's a real need uh, to have some kind of uh, buffer, uh, some kind of a group of uh, trained uh, people who appreciate, you know, the good parts of China, and there are many, and the parts that need to be uh, modified and, and can take a lifetime role uh, thinking about those things and talking to, to the, the citizens and the 38 countries that they come from. Um, you've also given away hundreds of millions of dollars to philanthropy. A lot of it has gone toward education. Your former public school, I know some schools here in New York where you've sponsored students, um, Yale, MIT, the Schwarzman Scholars. But if you had to pick one area, where do you think you will have the greatest impact of all of those I've mentioned? Well, that's like asking somebody about child, which, right? which of their children I'm gonna ask they, you, they, they really like. Uh, and the way uh, I was raised, mm -hmm. you, you love all your children equally. Right. Uh, and, and so I can't give you uh, a more perceptive uh, answer than that. Each thing that I've tried to do, I think, is really, really, really important for the constituencies that are involved. But it also think, seems that the common thread is education. And how do you think that you can play a role in solving for education? Where do you see some of the dislocation, some of the problems that could be solved? You know, it's important, and I try and support a variety of things to do this. And from individual students in the Catholic school system where uh, we, we have 90% of them as minorities and 70% uh, at the poverty line or mm -hmm. below, and 98% graduate, 96 go on uh, to college. It's like an amazing set of outcomes. Uh, and you know, our, our great universities uh, around the world can address certain types of problems. Like in China, we're trying to bring the world to China uh, so, so that the world can understand China better uh, in the United States. Uh, you know, we're working on uh, AI ethics issues, uh, which are really going to be critical as people get a better idea of what's going on with AI. You were up at MIT with me, and we talked about uh, those issues. I'm doing some of that at Oxford. Uh, and th these are big uh, challenges and opportunities uh, facing us as, as human beings, as Americans, uh, and, and international. Uh, constituencies. So I, I like doing these kinds of big things. I've got a wonderful product, project at Yale uh, where I think will change the way students relate and, and you know, have a central place to be, uh, which I never had uh, when I was there. So everything I do, I try and impact uh, uh, an important mm -hmm. problem or issue. You know, one of the issues that a lot of your peers have brought up, I'm just thinking Ray Dalio, for example, has brought up um, capitalism and the need to reform capitalism. Do you think capitalism needs to be reformed, and what sort of role can folks like yourself play? Well, I think capitalism needs to be reformed less, and education has to be made better. Mm -hmm. If we had a much more qualified workforce, 
than, than, than capitalism per se uh, would work better. Uh, to try and get capitalism to fix an entire society is, is a good objective, um, and, and companies should do what they can uh, for that, but, but there are different levers uh, in, in our system that, that actually uh, have to come into play to make it all work. I only have a couple more questions for you. Um, you have some simple rules in your book for identifying market tops and bottoms. I suppose this is a great framework for looking at where we are in the cycle. So right now, using those rules, where do you think we are and where do you see us heading? Well, we're not at the bottom and we're not in the middle. Uh, so, so I think it's uh, a time where the U.S. is probably growing. I don't know. We'll find out retrospectively. but. You know, somewhere around 2%, maybe a tiny bit less. Um, we've got great consumers, 70% mm -hmm. of the economy, and manufacturing uh, going down, and, and stock markets uh, uh, pretty much at records. So, so in, in, you know, bond markets are sort of at records. And so usually when everything's doing records all the time, and, and there's a lot of geopolitical uncertainty, um, it, it's usually like a wake-up call, it's not red, uh, but it's yellow. Uh, and it, 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 it makes you be more conservative when, when you're investing. Uh, it makes you think more about downsides. It makes you want to buy higher quality things uh, because your chance of accidentally being lucky, uh, which happens at the bottom of a cycle, is much lower. All right, Steve, you end your book with a question. You write, what's next? Who knows? So what's next for you? Well, that's why I ended it I that know. way. Okay, I, okay. I, fair, fair. And, and I think what, what happens, what I've learned in my life, is, is all you have to do is keep doing what you're doing, keep getting all the feeds uh, from, from all the activities, whether it's Blackstone or my charitable stuff or things where I touched government, and what happens is you see something that you didn't see before. And that leads you to something big and something interesting. And uh, I've learned all you have to do is be active and wait, and you'll see it. Stephen Schwarzman, CEO of the Blackstone Group and author of What It Takes, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Terrific.